Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray. And I'm Ellen McGirt. And Ellen, I'm really excited about our guest today. Uh, for a bunch of different reasons. His name is Roger Ferguson. He is the CEO of TIAA, which is a giant money manager, over a trillion dollars. But that's only part of it. He's actually stepping down from that job in March. Uh, I've known Roger since he came to Washington in 1997 to join the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And uh, if you believe what you read in the papers these days, he may be going back into government. That's what I hear. Department of Interior, do you think, Alan? I don't know. I don't know. Roger is a Roger is a financial guy and an economist all the way through and, you know, has thought a lot about what, in fact, talks a lot, talked a lot to us about what it will take to get the economy on track. And I think he'd be a good person to be at the president's uh, right hand in working through this current crisis. I do, too. You know, I'm a longtime uh, Roger Ferguson fan, which is a funny thing, except if you remember, I started out life as a financial and markets reporter. <laughs> and I first got to know his steady hand when he was back at the Fed uh, right after 9-11. And he does tell a wonderful story about that. Yeah, you brought up the interesting role he played during the 9-11 crisis uh, yep. that we'll, we'll get into here. Well, let's dive into the interview. It's it's well worth listening to. And, and since he's leaving TIAA and he is in the news about a potential role in the Biden administration, we started with a question about what he thinks we need to get this economy on track. So, Roger, I, I'd like to start talking about the economy. It's a little unclear where we are, bounced back from uh, a slowdown in the spring. But are we headed towards another downturn? Certainly, 2020 has not worked out as any of us expected. You know, back in January, February, uh, everyone thought, well, the economy would continue to grow. It was already the longest uh, continuous uninterrupted expansion in American history. I think we all thought the stock market uh, would still have a little uh, upside left, maybe growing four or five percent, not double digits. And as you point out, you know, COVID hit and suddenly the world was topsy-turvy. Um, so we had uh, the shortest and also one of the deepest recessions in, in American history, one quarter, more or less, a dramatic bounce back. But it's important to say, even after the so-called dramatic bounce back, there was somewhat of a V. Still, the overall economy uh, is roughly 3% or so smaller now than it was at the end of last year. And certainly, you know, many sectors are still struggling. Um, and finally, even though the unemployment rate has come down, we still have you know, 10 million Americans more or less unemployed, and we're worried about the uh, rise in long-term unemployment. So I think the odds of a double-dip recession seem to be rising. First, we are in a very large wave uh, of COVID-19. I don't know if it's the second wave or the third wave, but you know, another wave uh, of COVID-19. Uh, more and more states uh, talking about shutting down one form or another, you know, mask requirements going up, discouraging people from traveling. And importantly, while markets are forward looking, equity markets and continue to be optimistic, there is no prospect of stimulus on the horizon at this stage. And so I do think the odds of a double dip have gone up. And I would encourage uh, Congress and the new administration uh, to think very seriously about an, another round of stimulus. 
Yeah, so dive into that a little bit. What needs to happen to keep a double dip from happening? The question what needs to happen to keep a double dip from happening is what happened the first time to keep uh, what turned out to be a recession uh, from being a deeper uh, and longer lasting recession. So I think the federal government needs to come in again directly to individuals, supporting them as they did the last time with uh, extra money in the pay packet, so to speak. Uh, Extending unemployment benefits needs to be certainly very much on the table. I would argue uh, direct assistance to states and localities is will be very important. And uh, continuing to uh, consider things such as um, mortgage forbearance and other things that allow individuals to live off of the savings that they have and not worry so much about losing households, et cetera. The other thing that's a bit of a challenge right now is Secretary Mnuchin announced that he was pulling back some of the funding that was sitting with the Federal Reserve to support some programs. Um, I think that was an unusual decision, uh, one that I think maybe was poorly timed. Um, and so, you know, I think we need to rethink that as well, which would require, I believe, Congress to act. So I think, uh, you know, we'd have many of the pages in the playbook and it's just running the plays again in a way that looks not too dissimilar at all from what we did the first time around, with the exception of adding, I think, directly some support for state and local governments because they are clearly under stress uh, and are confronting layoffs, which I think will just simply slow things down. The other reason to support state and local governments is that they provide many of the services that are called for to help people get through these troubled times. Uh, and so I think their finances uh, deserve special attention. To that point, um, one of the things that has really been worrisome, particularly for those of us on the, the race and equity beat, is watching what's happening to working communities, often low-income workers, black and brown, who jobs were already scheduled to be eliminated through automation and innovation down the road, you know, already vulnerable. And now as essential workers in, in retail in particular, sometimes in healthcare, they're even more vulnerable. And I'm curious if there's some array of strategies or what we should be thinking about from either a public or private sector point of view to think about the future of those communities and those families. Well, I think I'm glad you raised that question uh, because this uh, series of crises that we've seen, a health crisis, an economic crisis, and a racial justice crisis have all highlighted the deep inequities that exist across many dimensions. For me, the most telling statistic is that African-Americans make up approximately 13% of the American population, but approximately 23% of those who have died from uh, COVID-19 have been African-Americans. Um, and so I think a focus back, as I said, on state and local governments with a recognition that, you know, providing uh, directly or indirectly uh, for those hospitals and those uh, stressed communities would be very important. You know, over the longer term, you know, the issues that you're confronting about the kinds of jobs that uh, African-Americans, uh, you know, say, as you say, black and brown people have taken, have tended to be disproportionately in the service sector. Um, and those jobs are, one, at risk as we see uh, now um, with small restaurants closing down, hospitality closing down, transportation closing down. Yeah, I think part of the solution there has got to be uh, both a short-term solution of shoring up the social safety net and a longer-term solution of continuing the process of building skills. There are a number of CEOs in New York as an example that have gotten together to try to partner with CUNY, the City University of New York, and SUNY, the State University of New York, uh, with a focus on, you know, giving different kinds of certificates 
to individuals to get those people, you know, reskilled to take on jobs um, in the tech sector, you know, coding type jobs and others. So I think there are solutions that come from the government and how it targets fiscal policy and from, you know, the private sector in partnership with higher ed as, as an example. Uh, to create longer term uh, solutions around skill building. That makes me feel better. It makes me feel like if we have a real village working on this, then we can start to make some progress, which leads me to a question about representation. I was joking earlier for anybody who's listening that I'm a big Roger Ferguson fan, partly because I'd followed your career from the lens of a financial reporter working at Money Magazine. And I remember speaking to students trying badly to explain what the Fed did. This is back when you were at the Fed. I still can't do it now, so don't ask me. But I, <laughs> I said the, the, the simplest thing I could think of. It said, look, this really matters. This is a man who made sure at one of the worst moments in American history, which is on 9-11, that there was cash in the ATM machines. That, that was an important job. <laughs> well done, Nell. <laughs> right? And that now let's think about the fact that he's one of the few black regulators in the history of the world, of the American Republic here. And what does that mean to, for representation? And suddenly there was a small segment of the, of the room whose eyes opened up, like, this is a path forward for me. So why does it matter that there are so few uh, non-majority culture folks in leadership in banking and regulation? Because I think that's an important way in to this conversation? Well, I think it is too. And um, I think it matters because at heart, we have a, you know, a capitalist system. We have a free market system. We know it needs to be improved. It needs to be made more inclusive. But the core of our society is around the free market. And you know, if one is going to understand and live in a capitalist system, then you need to really have the tools to do that successfully. And some of those tools have to do with financial literacy. But whatever happens, um, we need diverse representation in uh, the capitalist system at the top levels, middle levels, and as well as lower levels, and in the regulatory uh, component of it, to bring an understanding of the impact of different elements of that system on different communities. And to have that understanding be much more, I'll use the word instinctive and maybe personal, uh, as opposed to sort of studied in a book and, you know, analyzed from afar. Uh, and so I do think representation is incredibly important, both in the upper echelons of finance and in the upper echelons of regulation in order to be part of the drive towards a more inclusive capitalism. You know, so the instinctive understanding that roles, regulations, uh, products and services that look neutral on their face may end up uh, having a disproportionate impact, hopefully unintentionally, on one group versus another. Um, and I think that's going to be, you know, that is something that's going to be an important part of making capitalism move forward and creating, you know, a sense of trust in capitalism across all of America. Uh, so that's, I think, a, an important element. If I could say one thing about your small example on keeping cash in <laughs> ATMs, um, it seems small to some degree, but I will tell you, it's one of the things that we focused on during that time because I did not want there to be a shortage of cash in ATMs leading to a concern about the stability of the banking system. And so I think actually, while we chuckle about it a little bit, the ability to make monetary policy and central banking relevant to people's day-to-day -day lives is, is incredibly important. One of the things I'm most proud of is after 9-11, um, we went to Congress, first time the Fed had ever proposed legislation, and then you know, I got to spearhead it, um, for something called the Check Clearing Act for the 21st Century, Check 21. 
none of you would ever heard of this thing. But the reason that we have mobile payments now is because of that act. It, it basically says you can take a check and the image of a check is as good as the check itself. Right. And that has allowed us yeah. to do payments on our iPhones. Look, I want to go back to you made a reference to inclusive capitalism. You were CEO. You are CEO. of. I don't want to get you out of there too early, Roger. We'll talk about that in a minute. But you were CEO of TIAA at a, over a decade when stakeholder capitalism was on the rise. That's a central premise of this podcast. But I wonder from your experience, how much can companies really do to address social problems? Yeah, I think companies can do quite a bit to address social problems. First and foremost, let's recognize, as you just said, that the the tone of that discussion has changed, you know, quite a bit. Where the notion of multi-stakeholder capitalism um, has become, you know, more relevant, let's say, even more in vogue. The Business Roundtable had a statement that I think got quite a bit of attention. Yeah, you, know, you mentioned my company. You know, we have believed in multi-stakeholder capitalism for many, many years, going back to the '70s. I'm going to read a quote from my predecessor, Bill Greeno who said, quote, and a corporation can only continue to be a profitable investment for its stockholders if it discharges its obligations to society. And that was an op-ed that Bill Greeno wrote, Dr. Bill Greeno wrote in 1971 in the New York Times. So we believe that there is certainly an important role here for corporations to play, to recognize that, you know, how they carry on their business has an impact on the communities in which they carry on their business. The other point I'd make is it's really important for us to recognize that it's not an either or, it's rather a both and. And so what do I mean by that? If we look at some of the largest incidents of a governance failure or a um, environmental failure that has often led to a large destruction in shareholder value, you know, think about issues at drilling sites, for example. Think about questions around some of the major automobile companies and their emission standards and how they were dealing with that. You know, those things that were uh, important governance issues or societal issues or environmental issues soon translated into you know, shareholder value issues and C-suite credibility issues. And so we have to recognize that, you know, what one does and how you do it if you're running a company, can be as important, sometimes more important than, you know, the quarter to quarter earnings per share growth that markets are so focused on. Yeah. And, and Roger, look, I get people on this podcast frequently talk about the win-win solutions and you made a reference to kind of lose-lose solutions. But there are trade-offs. There have to be trade-offs where from time to time as a CEO, you're looking at decisions where one decision would fatten the pockets of your shareholders in the short term, but might not be what you think would be the best decision for society over time. I, I push back a little bit, which is thinking about what's good for society over time is also, I think, ultimately thinking about what's good for your shareholders over time. Um, and so one of the reasons that many companies, not all, but some have moved away uh, from quarterly guidance is to allow them to focus on executing a strategy. You know, strategies don't prove themselves to be right or wrong in, in a one quarter, two quarter, three quarter timetable. And by the way, no long term strategy is viable if it is not consistent with the best kinds of environmental, social and governance behaviors. And so I guess I, I push back a little bit on you, Alan, here and say, you know, if we fall into the, into the trap of thinking, well, let's do what's great for this quarter, even if it's not going to be sustainable 
for many years to come, I, we fall into a trap of maximizing short-term shareholder value, but risking the destruction of long-term shareholder value. And, you know, that cannot be good. And certainly my own company, you know, our company, TIAA, we are a very large holder and we tend to be a long-term holder. And we are much more interested in what is the strategy that the C-suite is trying to execute and how do we watch that unfold over several years mm. uh, and judge it that way. Um, and so, you know, I, I really do think we should not fall in the trap of believing that uh, you know, we should represent or support short term. Um, I think the idea should be to move to capitalist points of view, shareholder points of view that are long term. And the more you take a long term view, I think the more you see an alignment between creating shareholder value and having good ESG type behaviors. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, the CEO of Deloitte U.S., which is the sponsor of this podcast. Joe's one of the most thoughtful people I've met on the topics we discuss here every week. Joe, thanks for joining. Alan, pleasure to be with you. Joe, there's a tremendous amount of fear out there at a time like this. And the normal tendency for people faced with fear is to either freeze or to panic. How do leaders deal with those conflicting impulses? It's essential to maintain the trust of your people and your external stakeholders. You have to demonstrate in a circumstance like this that health comes first. And you have to demonstrate that whatever message you're delivering is credible and grounded in the real facts. It's okay to say, here's what we know, here's what we don't know. People don't expect us as CEOs to have a crystal ball. They do expect us though to deliver straight talk that enables everyone to understand how this could play out and how each of those paths could affect both the company and them individually. And it really is important to have a compelling vision for the future that's inspiring, but doesn't appear to paint over the difficult present circumstances. You have to acknowledge and own how challenging the current circumstances are to earn the right to speak to a more optimistic future in a way that instills confidence. Good advice, Joe, thanks. Great thoughts as always. Wonderful to be with you, Alan. Roger, let me change the uh, subject just a little bit. You are one of, I believe if I have the numbers right, just four black CEOs in the Fortune 500. And when you step down on uh, March 31st, there'll only be three, uh, Ken Frazier, Marvin Ellison, Renee Jones. How can that be and what can be done about it? So I, th I think the, the what can be done about it is to recognize, first recognize this is not an outcome that we like, right? If we as a society think that's probably not a good outcome that, you know, here we are, you know, again, 13% of Americans are African-American, but, you know, less than 1% of Fortune 500 CEOs are African-American. That doesn't seem consistent with the kind of, you know, broadly diverse society we have. So that's point one, the side that that's not a good outcome. Point two, recognize that what it takes to become you know, CEO of a major Fortune 500 company is a combination of many years of hard work, certain amount of mentorship, and frankly, a certain amount of serendipity. And ultimately recognize that the bodies that choose CEOs are the boards of directors. So all of that says there are two or three solutions to focus on. One is creating diversity in the boardroom 
so that when it's time to put together that selection committee to look for a CEO, they're diverse voices. Someone saying, well, wait a minute, we should have you know, a diverse slate. We should be looking more widely than we normally would look. And you know, let's not decide until we see a diverse slate. I know and the company that I am privileged to lead, TIAA, when they selected me uh, roughly 13 years ago, the very beginning of 2008, the board insisted with the executive recruiting firm, they see a diverse slate. So that's item one, you know, a board that is diverse itself and values diversity and looks for a diverse slate in CEOs. Item two is recognizing what it takes to become CEO ready is mm. you know, a variety of business experiences. And what, is, what does that mean? Well, it means in the corporation, starting with the point of view that diversity and inclusion does matter at every level uh, in the organization and recognize that it's not just right from a moral standpoint, but it's right from a business standpoint. You know, there's more and more data that show that diverse organizations have better uh, performance. And I think I saw recently a McKinsey study that suggested that companies that are in the top quintile, the top 20 percent in terms of diversity, outperform those in the bottom uh, 20% in terms of diversity by some numbers I call correctly roughly 30% in terms of profitability. So if that kind of study is accurate, there's a business reason to value uh, diversity. So that's item two, create a culture that values diversity and inclusion. And then item three is identify the weak spots in your particular company when it comes to attracting, retaining and promoting uh, diverse talent. You know, is it that you're not getting uh, enough people in, 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 the, in the pools that you're interviewing? If that's the case, go to schools where there are more diverse individuals. Look at HBCUs. Uh, is the challenge that uh, you know, you're recruiting really good talent, but somehow or another, you know, they're not retaining it. So ask the question, you know, are you, is there a broken rung someplace in your organization that seems to be the place where people are leaving? Are there changes you can make in your processes that allow you to hold on to the better talent? So, you know, those are the three things that I think are important. Once you recognize that the absence of uh, diversity in the C-suite at the CEO level is not acceptable, then item one, the board you know, takes a look to see uh, exactly you know, what they should be doing. Two, companies themselves you know, really double down on their focus on diversity and inclusion as a cultural imperative and business imperative. And then three, you know, the HR team, the C-suite develop processes to attract, retain, excite and promote, you know, the talent that you need so that there are plenty of uh, experienced people to uh, fill in those slots and slates when you're looking for a CEO. So I think it's like any problem manageable if you break down the pieces. Yeah. And it's just about, you know, consistent execution across large numbers of companies. Fortune, me in particular, takes the point of view that the journey to the C-suite starts at birth. And if it takes 22 years to grow an entry level employee, so much goes wrong for people of color in this country. And it's getting it's getting worse. You need access to health care, good education, clean water and food, you know, all of those things to grow a healthy society and access to civic interaction. You have to be able to vote and get your your representatives on the phone and, and really participate. So where in that four point plan is the we need to look outside of our walls part of it? Because I do think that's we're not going to get there without without y'all. 
No, I agree. So that I would say that's an additional part of the program. And it goes back to the partnerships that might exist between governments, higher ed organizations and, and corporations. Um, and so first, let's recognize the facts. As you say, you know, access to health care. Well, it turns out that nearly 10 percent of blacks lack health insurance compared to about 5 percent of whites. Um, and among workers, blacks are 60 percent more likely to be uninsured than whites. And so let's start by recognizing you know, those facts. We know the poverty rate for blacks at about 20 to 21 percent is far higher than for non-Hispanic whites, which is roughly 8 percent. So that validates your point. What can be done about it? Well, I see companies, including my own company, TIAA, thinking about places where they can partner with, in our case, some K-12 schools to raise the level of financial literacy. So we have a number of programs that we do to help drive that component. I could imagine other schools partnering with other businesses to focus on, you know, healthy behaviors of one sort or another, where the company itself brings some expertise. My company is, our company is a, you know, financial wellness organization focused on retirement. And so it makes sense for us to go to, you know, the K-12 schools and talk about basic financial literacy. You know, something else that we've done is we have partnered with HBCUs to have job fairs to raise the level of awareness about roles in the financial services sector uh, for the graduates of those schools. Uh, and so, you know, I, I do think that there is obviously a place for companies to look outside of their walls to their societies yeah. to help drive you know, some of the kinds of changes that we've talked about. And obviously in, in 2020, a year when we you know, have confronted so much uh, racial injustice. Uh, think of the name George Floyd. Yeah. That is absolutely a time for companies to, you know, show that they can and will make a difference around, you know, racism in society. Um, and the final thing is to work hard in, again, your area of expertise to try to change policy. So one of the things that uh, TIA did, along with many, many others, is worked hard with Congress uh, to encourage them to create something called the SECURE Act. Relatively technical, but it improves retirement outcomes for everyone, including making you know, uh, opportunities for smaller employers to have cost-effective retirement programs. If it's done well, it can create financial security for individuals in small and medium-sized businesses who may or may not be disproportionately African-American or, or, or Hispanic. So, you know, there are many components uh, which we can work to make society better along the lines that you're talking about. So so let's stick with policy, Roger. You you are, uh, in my book, a young man. Uh, when, when, I like that book. <laughs> when you step down on March 31st, you have a lot of runway ahead of you. Ellen and I are hoping you'll take a job in the Biden administration. Does that look like it's in the card? Uh, you have to talk to the Biden administration about it. Um, <laughs> you know, I'm, oh, come on, I'm right. sure when it's You're the among right. friends. <laughs> You're among friends. I'm here. among friends. How many listeners then viewers do you have among our, among our friends? So uh, obviously I can't comment directly on that. The Biden administration will make announcements uh, about personnel decisions, I'm sure, at many points between now and January 20th and after that. So we'll see what happens. Well, we'll keep rooting for you the whole time. <laughs> what a friend. <laughs> Thank you so much for taking the time to be with us on, on Leadership Next. We really appreciate it. Thank you for giving me this opportunity. It was a, a wonderful conversation, and I, I learned a great deal from the questions. So thank you so much. 
Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 